Oh yeah, it sure does feel good to be back home. Did I miss the cold? I don't think so. Arizona was full of snow and the Big Apple had us in thermals. What's good, everyone? This is Schmitty with another episode of Talking Schmidt. Today on the show, we're going to the punk rock scene and interviewing Chris Rest. Chris was in one of my favorite bands growing up, RKL, also known as Rich Kids on LSD. And now he plays in the Fat Records band Lagwagon. Stoked to get this one finally done and looking forward to... A follow-up with the good homie, Little Joe Raposo, um, who's also in the band. If you don't know, hold on, let's do this proper. Let's do this proper, mate. I was going to do this proper, eh? If you don't know, RKL was a group of friends that started playing in the Santa Barbara area and later did some time in San Francisco. These guys were huge inspo to me and my bros in high school and all the way into adulthood, you know, even right now, songs like Keep Positive, Beautiful Feeling, Dead Ted's, Into the Rock and Roll Nightmare, Sarcastic Jester, Break the Camel's Back. Uh, their influence is heavy. Just ask most bands on Fat Records and any drummer out there uh, trying to emulate the great bomber. Uh, I interviewed the lead singer, Jason Sears, before he passed for Thrasher Magazine. Um, I'm not sure what year that was, but I've seen them play a lot, including a show in Santa Barbara with the Ramones. Anyways, I can go on about these guys forever. Um, I love RKL. But before we start, I want to give a shout out to our new advertiser. John Joseph Van Landingham of Southern Georgia, who has been skating since 1986 and blowing glass since 96. His glass is homemade in the USA, and you can find out more info from him on his Instagram or his Facebook. Someday he may even have one of them OG websites to peep. Anyway, I'm super hyped. He reached out to me. Um and stoked to get someone who's down for the cause. So with that, John Joseph Van Landingham, keep it going. And like Albino says, provoke the stoke. Provoking the stoke. Also, I want to give a big shout out to Michael, who ran me down in uh, the Upper West Side. We were going to the Seinfeld Diner, and he ran me down and said, hey, man, I love the show. Uh, been following you since Epically Trife days. Him and his daughter took some photos and it was cool. Cheryl was stoked. She's been telling anyone they'll listen that her husband got ran down in New York for a little fan out situation. Frisco icon. Big props, man. Thank you. Shout out. So yeah, anyway, we are always down for advertising to help support what we're doing here. Blood wizard. Blood wizard. Blood wizard. Blood wizard. Shop at bloodwizard.com. Hey, it's Corey at Blue Plate, 3218 Mission Street. Come see us. Meatloaf, fried chicken, deviled eggs, Dollar Olympia beers. We're here every day of the week. We got a garden and we got smiles on our faces. Come let us make you happy. So if you're interested in advertising yourself, you'd be surprised at the low, low prices. 
uh, hit me up talking Schmidt at gmail.com or just DM me on the Instagram, whatever works for you. It works for me. Northern California. We finally got it. Basketball wise, April 15th marks golden state versus Sacramento for the first time ever in playoff atmosphere. I got to be honest. We're going to put out the beam. Sorry about you sack. Okay, so before we get to Chris, I just want everyone to listen to the words of this song that was written in the 80s and applies even more today. a grin think positive shout out to rob washburn at pal good catching up with you and talking early rkl you were there jason sears for ramp no doubt hope you guys enjoy this one and i hope to be back next week busy life kids keeps me away from the podcast life sometimes peace hey i'm chris rest and you're listening to talking schmidt Podcast. Hey, hey, hey. Fucking Schmidt. I'm already not watching. It's cool. Like, tonight is the night. Damn, this is like the coolest thing I'm ever going to do. I wouldn't say it was fun. What do you mean? Well, Christian Fletcher's younger brother. Fuck the Dodgers. Oh, big dog's in. What do you think, Dolan? We on? Schmitty? Talking Schmidt. Alpha macaroni. Most of these guys, their opinion don't matter. Talking Schmidt, right? It's skateboarding. I remember that. Talking Schmidt. What are yuns doing? Holy shit. Skateboarding homies. No, Schmidt, you can't jump in. What is happening? I'm here for great. Yes, we are. Wi-Fi check one, Wi-Fi check two. All right, here we go. Um, I just got to say before we start this that I'm super fired up. I've been a fan of RKL since I think 1984, and uh, I've been talking to Chris for a little while, trying to get him here on the podcast, and our schedules have finally aligned, and we got this going. But when we're talking about rich kids on LSD who started in 1982 from keep laughing all the way through to riches to rags in 94 and into lag wagon and even into the 2022 release of the live album, there's only one, there's only one consistent member. And that's this guy right here. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Um, Hype that we got to get this going. You too. Thanks. Where were you born and re- you were raised down in Ventura area, Oxnard maybe, or Goleta? Uh, I was born in San Gabriel area. Mm. Uh, Sierra Madre Canyon is where my parents lived when I was a little kid or baby. And um, 
my dad was a musician when he was in high school. He played in a bluegrass band and um, his dad owned a camera shop in um, San Gabriel and my dad worked there and he says, he told me he used to give guitar lessons like uh, at a local music shop. He tried to get me to play guitar over the years, but he played, you know, acoustic guitar. And I remember as a little kid, it just hurt my fingers and I, uh, it just never caught on until I picked up an electric guitar. But I played some piano. My mom started me off on piano and I actually played drums before I actually got into guitar. At what age? I started playing drums at probably 11 and then I got an electric guitar at 13. Damn. Okay. And now so I'm 55 now. <laughs> I should be a virtuoso, I think. <laughs> was was the drums, do you think that early bit of drums helped you kind of like realizing anything as far as composing songs or just any of that kind of stuff? I know how important drums and bass are as the backbone. And then when you're playing guitar, maybe having that realization kind of helped you figure out where where you need to be. I think piano was a perfect starting point because you everything's linear and, and um, with guitar, it's kind of like having six separate keyboards on top of each other. It makes it super confusing for a beginner. But um, yeah, drums and, and, and real understanding tempo and, and dividing beats up into, you know, quarters and sixteenths and 30 seconds. Um, and triplets and all that stuff was really useful too. I think the the foundation of piano and and drums really helped me out a lot. And so, Arkel, was it you and Jason meet first, or did you meet Bomber? Or I mean, you guys are like twelve and thirteen years old when this all goes <laughs> down, right? Uh, not when RKL started, but when I met Jason, I was probably twelve or thirteen. He was he was on my soccer team. Okay, yeah. And um, <clears throat> I didn't meet Bomber until right before uh, junior high school, and I had my mom moved to Summerlin, California, which is part basically in Santa Barbara, but it was just a little beach town and Bomber. <laughs> Bomber showed up there. He was best friends with the um, the son of the guy who owned the property we were renting. And um, so Bomber was just like a permanent fixture. He basically came with the property. And I remember he had a, he had a bad limp when I first met him because he had broke his knee or somehow dislocated something with his knee at a skate park in Santa Barbara called Golf and Fun. And he always used to complain about that. He, oh, that, that little mini half pipe was so badly designed and, and whatever. And he <laughs> blamed it on the skate park while he busted his knee. But like he, so I had a friend named Sean that used to come over and play drums and I play guitar. And we had a, one of my other friends would just sing into the, into the boom box that we had set up on the, bookshelf and he would you know they he would just make stuff up and we'd jam and make little recordings and bomber would come over and bomber any any instrument that he picked up he just instantly like uh just 
perfected it. I don't know. It's crazy. And like, so my friend Sean had been playing drums for quite a while, and I mean, about a year. And Bomber yeah. like, so let me let me try, and it was just instantly like blazing, and it was crazy. And him and Jason were both good at everything. It was ridiculous. Was Jason already was like what years was this? Was snowboarding happening, or is that later? Let's see. Um, this was probably 80, 81. So I think maybe Tom Sims had started snowboarding a little bit and I'm not, yeah, I guess snowboarding was starting to, to become a thing. I can't really remember when that started. What's your influences right then? Well, I, I didn't have any older siblings to tell me what was cool or what wasn't. And so it was difficult for me to figure out what to buy at the record store. I remember just choosing records because of the album cover. Yeah, I'm saying. For the most part, that worked until I bought a Meatloaf, Bat Out of Hell, and I was <laughs> severely disappointed. I like the record now, but as a 12-year-old kid, I was like, oh, man, bogus. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> but I, I used to, you know, my mom listened to FM radio a lot, and um, so I was into... I. I, that's how I learned about Led Zeppelin and ACDC and mm. Cheap Trick and the Cars were like my two favorite bands. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, we we did have this one tenant that was renting a room from my parents who had a record collection and said, yeah, anything you want to hear, go ahead. And so I would just go through his record collection and uh, he had the Clash London Calling and that was a record that I... I mean, that, that cover obviously drew me to it. The guy's smashing his bass. Yeah. And um, I put that on, and I didn't know that was punk rock. I, the only thing I knew about punk rock was something I saw on TV, and it showed this punk club in England, and these people were extremely punk rock. And it showed people eating red jello off of baby dolls, and, <laughs> and they had safety pins through their cheeks. And I was like, that is not something I'm interested in at all. But <laughs> so, and I didn't know that the surf, that um, the class was punk rock. I just knew I liked that and I liked them, but I also liked ELO and I liked the cars a lot. And I liked um, Led Zeppelin and um, <clears throat> I hadn't really discovered Kiss yet or Black Sabbath, which I should have known about, but if I just didn't have any older siblings to let me know what I should listen to. You know, it's too bad because <laughs> I probably there's some cool stuff that, that was out there that I I wish I had known about earlier. Yeah, but you know, FM radio was a pretty good back then. They used to play Ted Nugent a lot and a lot of kind of aggro stuff. I remember uh, seeing. I'll add in our local Santa Barbara paper that Black Flag was playing on State Street at this tiny little club called George's. It was probably f about 50 people size capacity. It was just tiny club. And um, and I said, oh, that's punk rock. I wonder if they're going to have you know people eating jello off of babies. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there, there was kind of a people were upset that, that there was a punk show happening on State Street, downtown Santa Barbara. And that's why I was in the paper. They were talking about that. So it was kind of like, ooh, stay away from that. It was <laughs> like, the, don't, oh, wow. 
Um, was the PAL zone going on at that time? Was there like a, the indoor skate park at the PAL Peralta? Not that early. Um, so I lived on a really big, long downhill street um, um, called uh, Hot Springs Road in Montecito. And um, Tom Sims and the, and the early Sims team guys used to bomb that hill. And you could hear him coming down. You could hear him like half a block away. And if I was outside, I'd go running over to the fence and watch him go by. And they were going really fast. Right. And this is before hard urethane wheels. They, I don't think they could slide to stop. Like, I don't yeah. know how they stopped. Because there was a stop sign at the bottom and they <laughs> had to fly through there. I don't think they could stop if they had to. Huh. And as far as I know, no one ever got severely injured going down that hill, but that yeah. Was... So um, I don't know if you know who Edie Robertson is, but mm. she was on the Sims team, probably 79. Okay. And she held the record for 360s around that time. And her oh. mom was my sixth grade teacher. Oh, damn. Yeah. Her mom brought in a tape of her, of Edie's band and um, Edie was singing and she was doing a, a cover of that song precious um i think it's the pretenders and it, she says i'm precious fuck off and like, she like <laughs> being made sure to like stop the tape right there but that was that was pretty cool and, and that my grade school had a cool music program that's that kind of helped like all these things kind of aligned and you know i had a a musical background with my dad and my mom teaching me piano and I was drawn to me I just was drawn to music and was Tom Sims local then was he from yeah that oh wow yeah. uh, oh. this Tom Sims was local he um had a tiny little skate shop near my high school huh. I actually bought my first tube amp from Tom Sims no way it was a PV mace like 120 watt Two two twelve. Uh, there's there's several photos of me playing through that amp. It had like a built-in phaser thing. It was pretty pretty crummy, but <laughs> that rec that's the amp that I used on um, probably all the Mystic stuff that I oh recorded. wow yeah that rules. So I'm guessing that your parents are pretty supportive since they're already into music and uh it sounded like in the early stages you guys were practicing even at your place sometimes or creating some of the stuff yeah that's true uh, i mean my dad had already left by the time i, I got into like playing uh, punk rock basically i mean it's not easy to like I, I used to play drums drums a little bit and it's yeah. definitely not easy to like just convince people that it's okay to just not oh, know man. what you're doing and learn how to play this yeah. you know yeah i took drum lessons and um so when i first got this drum kit it was rad i um i got him home from school probably sixth grade and this guy was setting up a drum kit right in our foyer we had this big old dilapidated mansion that my parents bought in montecito it was like haunted crazy haunted man like falling apart mansion it was it was i don't know it's indescribable kind of but um so i just walked in like whoa this guy's setting up a drum kit and i was just kind of talking to him about it he goes 
you like it? And I'm all, yeah, it's great. He goes, cool, because it's yours. And I was like, no way. And, was, and so um, I was super stoked on that. And for a long time, I got to, I played it in my bedroom. I would just, I had a 70s like stereo with big old speakers. I would just turn on like, you know, Zeppelin or, or the Cars or Cheap Trick or something and play along. But <laughs> I remember um, at one point my dad got sick of it and he said, I, I want you to move the drum kit down into the basement. Uh-huh. So this is a big, creepy old house. And I, the basement was extremely frightening place to go. And, and I set up the drum kit down there and I probably practiced twice and I just gave up. <laughs> It was too scary down there. I would just, I'd be like, just like looking around. What was the first band? Do you remember what your first show was? Like what you, who you saw live first? Oh yeah. Well, the first real concert I ever went to was the Knack. Okay. The Knack at this big venue in UCSB. And I remember the Rubber City Rebels played that show and they were, pretty punk they were kind of a punk band mm. um and uh this one local kid he was probably santa barbara's first punk rocker his name was chris syphilis and he was in a band called the, the strap on dicks <laughs> and he i saw him walking down the aisle and he had a leather jacket that said fuck the knack on the back of it and i was like horrified by that because <laughs> i loved the knack and uh but I, I, I realized, you know, I mean, there was a big backlash when My Sharona came out and um, the Knack had, were a hit, like number one billboard band all of a sudden because they were sort of a new wave band that, that like a, a lot of punk rockers probably were into. And then they felt betrayed because all of a sudden this band was all mainstream. So, but at the time I was, I was, I thought that guy was a dick. <laughs> Yeah, it probably was. I, I don't know. I've, I've asked a lot of people if they if anyone knew him. And so far, I've never met anyone that really knew that guy. But huh, That's he was funny. like the first real punk rocker I ever saw. OK, did seen like when do you remember going to a live show and looking at it a little differently, like looking at more as like that? is what I want to do. I want to be up there. And that dude rips. I think the first band that really blew my mind was uh, the Battalion of Saints. I saw Battalion of Saints at um, this venue called the Vex, I think it was. And it was uh, in East Los Angeles, I think. It was uh, Soto Street. I don't know. It was a pretty crummy neighborhood. Uh-huh. I remember when we pulled off, it was all the billboards were in Spanish. And I was like, oh, <laughs> this is a different situation than I'm used to. And uh, so we went to this club and this 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 uh, guitar player, uh, Chris Smith, he had this crazy bleached hair that stuck straight up like six inches. And he played this Stratocaster and he was playing like Jimi Hendrix style solos over hardcore music and um i was like oh that's it i'm getting getting a stratocaster and i wanted to be like him but i, I mean before that i was super into rick nielsen and and cheap trick and cheap i had trick. seen i saw cheap trick as a young kid and i definitely wanted to be 
that you know he had the checkerboard explorer and yeah you know, i was super into checkerboard stuff and i wanted to explore really bad i didn't huh. get one until 2006 but that um i used to go to the music store and can i pick up the explorer and I, they had like a, a nice uh, dean explorer that's the same kind that he had and it was like as big as me <laughs> oh did you guys end up going to LA a lot or was Santa, did Santa Barbara have a pretty good, like a, a venue that would get a lot of traffic or if the good bands, would you have to go into LA? Okay. So golden voice did all the big shows basically back then. Uh -huh. um, and it was really difficult for a band from Santa Barbara to get golden Vase golden voice shows. Our first show was with agent orange at this uh, place called the Galita community center. Wow. I think that was, it might have been our first Golden Voice show, but it for sure was our first Santa Barbara big real show. And um, we were like opener. And I don't, I don't think anybody remembered us playing there, but I, it was uh, exciting for us. But yeah, I think just being from Santa Barbara, people from LA did not see us as a legitimate band. They're just like, oh, they're a bunch of surfer kids from Santa Barbara. And that was true. <laughs> Yeah. But, and, um, you know, when my friends would take me down to, to see shows in L.A., I was kind of terrified. It was those shows were brutal and just not huge. And, and the cops would, in, would come in with batons and there's always fights and mm. people lying on the ground after everyone left. And it was it was gnarly. L.A. was there's all these punk gangs and it was just a brutal place to go. <laughs> Yeah, I can't. I and can't. I was, you know, so young, and I don't. I, it was just for me. I would go because I felt like I almost obligated to go. But and I was excited about seeing the bands, and I saw some great shows down there. But it was kind of scary sometimes. Huh. Well, you, so you guys played your first show with Agent Orange. At that was our first like real Golden Voice show. We played several like um, smaller shows. There was. Um, so Santa Barbara had the, back then, I think the only real punk venue was the, the um, Goleta Community Center. Uh, it was a little later, this other venue called um, Casa de la Raza opened and that was, that was a pretty cool place. And that's where RKL played our last show with the original lineup with the Ramones. And that was like, after the Reseda show, um, we played that big Reseda show after we had gone to Europe and, and there's kind of this gap. It was weird. Like, so we had a really hard time getting shows. Even after Keep Laughing came out, we went, we toured the States and all the shows were just, you know, teenage promoters at the, at the local um veterans club or whatever and they're just horrible shows I and mean, there were some good ones and we got to play a few shows with subhumans and stuff and we played um cbgb a sunday matinee with that scream and there's there are some highlights for sure and um but a lot of the shows were just canceled or just horrible like just no no sound system no promotion no security no organization nothing right <laughs> Fuck, dude, that's insane because when keep laughing came out for us it was like 
a really important album. Like it was like we played it a lot nonstop yeah. for whatever. And I remember, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there was a, a pizza parlor in Redwood City, which is a city, the city I went to high school in. And they had punk shows. You guys played there. It was called the, I think not, the, I always get it mixed up with the covered wagon, I think was in no, SF. Yeah, it was. There was a Pony Express. Oh, it was yeah, the Pony Express Pizzeria and they had punk shows and they had little like uh, ladies that went around with flashlights. And, and if you were <laughs> slam dancing, they'd hit you on the back and say, no, 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 no. <laughs> but like uh, you guys played there, DRI played there. Uh, there was a, at least a year or two where we got like some bands coming through there and uh our local band was discontent and they were basically redwood city's rkl like they pretty much mm -hmm. stole your like <laughs> you you'd be like wait if we put our lyrics on that song that's uh dead dead you know <laughs> like whatever So uh, there was you guys were a huge influence for sure. So yeah, I remember I liked going to Redwood City. Climate best by government test. That's that's our slogan down there. <laughs> <laughs> when was it that you guys, before you even got the shows and stuff, like what made it seem like a band is reality for you? Like you at first, I'm I'm guessing you guys are just jamming together and throwing ideas, and then does like a song come together and you're like. I really like this song. We should do more of this or like what, what sparks it? I think we had a handful of songs the first week we were together. We were <clears throat> practicing in my bedroom. Bomber just started writing songs right away. I already had a handful of songs in. Um, okay. Uh, but the first song we ever played with Jason singing was uh, Bloodstains. From Agent Orange. Yeah. Whoa. And, and then we played, I think, Problem Child, Wasted Youth song. And um, our very first practice with Jason was because of Joey Cape from Lagwagon, because we thought we needed a second guitar player. And so we asked Joey, like, uh, Bomber was like, you know any other guitar players? It'd be cool to have two guitars. I go, yeah, my friend Joey plays guitar. So I, I got a hold of him and he said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it only if my friend Jason can sing. And I go, oh, I know Jason. And we were on the same soccer team. and. Um, Jason came over and Jason was super into it. Uh, I just, I don't think Joey was into it. He was more into metal at that point. Uh-huh. And we were probably not up to his technical skills at that point. <laughs> Is he a little older? Um, he's like six months older than me. But he'd just been doing but it. He longer. and his friends were super into metal. Like, okay. and we listened to Iron Maiden and, and, um, that was about the extent of it. Like, I think, you know, Joey and his friends would go to LA and look for the newest, you know, metal every weekend and stuff like that. So they were super into it. They went to concerts all the time. Um, but we, so we played a lot of, you know, living room party, you know, house parties, and they almost always got broken up before we could either before we could even play or before we finished. But there was a place in Isla Vista on the UCSB um, campus.
campus called the Red Barn. Mm. And you could rent it out for a hundred bucks and you could even bring in your own kegs of beer and sell cups and everything. And, and it we almost never had any problem with the cops there. And we had several shows there with several bands. A lot of hardcore bands came there. A lot of out of town, like I know Scream played there. Um, there's some big bands that actually came through there. It was it was a great little venue, and I don't I don't know how they handled insurance or anything, but um, as far as I can remember, no one got really hurt there. There was no stage or anything. It might have been like six inch. Oh right. Them, and no one's like jumping off stages. <laughs> I mean, Isla Vista's kind of always seemed like no rules. Let's just, just call it. Well, down. the cops there were super gnarly. Like when, um, when they did, when they decided to mess with you, they could. They were pretty brutal. The foot patrol oh. would beat, beat people, and yeah. It, it, but for some reason, I just remember not really ever having problems at the Red Barn, and that was like really beneficial venue for, for Santa Barbara punk bands. Uh-huh to have yeah because golden voice did all the shows at, at casa de la raza and at the um galita community center like i saw some big shows there i saw you know tsol played there several times um wasted youth played there. circle jerks bad brains came through there um i saw gbh there i saw um the misfits played there i was at that show wow <laughs> i was a little kid in a those guys looked huge when they walked through uh, and they had those huge spikes and I was just like, Oh my God. <laughs> my first show, my first real punk show was at the Galita community center and that was DOA. Mm. And, uh, my mom brought me there and, uh, I had, a, I had like a button up shirt. We saw buy button up shirts at the thrift store and draw stuff on the back. And, <laughs> I remember I went in the pit my first time ever in the pit and I was right at elbow level my face. And so I got elbowed in the nose and my nose was just gushing blood. And I just let the blood go down my shirt. I thought that was cool. And, and all these people were just staring at me like, what the hell is up with that kid? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. So that was like my first real punk experience actually. Damn. That's misfits at a young age is pretty like, <laughs> eye-opening for sure i could i didn't really know their songs and all i i guess i probably did but i just remember it was so loud and it sounded just like <laughs> that's all you could hear <laughs> right in the vocals and so like the the story is that you guys went to play or something and didn't have a name and some kids somebody had labeled you guys as oh they'll never be, amount to anything they're just a bunch of rich kids on lsd that's true and yeah, so we were called social revolt before that. Oh, <laughs> that was your uh, working uh, name. We had never played yet, but that was the, the name we had decided on. Uh huh. But so, then, yeah, RKL, we, someone told us that, oh, Tom told Tom was saying, you guys are never going to mount anything that you're just a bunch of rich boys on LSD. And then so, well, let's go with that. That's cool. <laughs> Were you guys doing a lot of LSD at a young age? It's possible. It's possible. I like when I asked Jason that in the interview, he's like, I'm going to take the Fifth Amendment. (laughs) Huh? So that's insane. I mean, from 
talking to you guys over the years, it seems like you definitely didn't feel at the time what you felt later in life about the band. The band definitely got recognized later in your your eyes, yeah? Yeah, I mean, in Santa Barbara, we were as a big fish in the little pond, and right. you know, people would go to any party we played, and, um, and we had a pretty tight group of friends, you know. Um, Dead Ted's house was like the mecca of all the, our punk friends, and um, it was right next to Santa Barbara High School, and a lot of, you know, you could go down there anytime, and you'll probably run into somebody looking for something to do. But it was just like outside of Santa Barbara, even Oxnard, I don't think we were recognized as legit just because we were from Santa Barbara. And the only thing people knew about Santa Barbara was like Ronald Reagan's from there. And <laughs> <laughs> they got Michael Jackson's house somewhere out there. <laughs> Uh, were you guys friends with Ill Repute and Stalag 13 and Dr. No, any of those Oxford We were, bands? all of them, yeah. Yeah. So Aggression did was probably the first punk band, um, right, right. hardcore band I ever saw. I went to a party in Oxnard with some friends, and it was Aggression and MIA, which was uh, Oxnard MIA. Uh-huh. Um, they were kind of like a TSOL-style kind of gothy punk band. I really liked them. They were cool dudes. And um, yeah, Stalag and uh, so once we got, so we used to go, <laughs> going back to the, the LA thing, like um, it was really hard to get Golden Voice shows in LA. Um, and, but there was this club called the Cafe des Grandes and it mm -hmm. was um, right half a block away from Mystic Records. And you could just make a phone call and say, hey, you got any days open? And they say, yeah, we got Thursday you know, the 17th, and you go, okay, put us down, we're RKL, we'll, you know, we'll bring some friends, and they're, okay, great, you're on, you know, and so it was, it was kind of like that, it was super, uh, you know, there was no guarantee anyone would show up, but you were supposed to try to bring in your own crowd, and, and you didn't get paid or anything, but that's how we got involved with Mystic, because uh, Philco and, and Doug, Moody would would come to the shows there and, and kind of scout out new punk bands. Mm. We played there. I think the first time we ever played there, um, Philco said, "Hey, we're doing. You know, I'm Phil from Mystic Records. Would you like to come see our office and our recording studio? Um, we'd like you guys to record some songs for a compilation, um, the Narcore compilation in these bands. You know, you mentioned I think Aggression and Doctor No." And we were like super stoked on that. We had uh, already recorded two real demos, but before like the only way to get our music to people was on cassette tapes. We would just give them out to people at shows and stuff. What was the first song you recorded? Uh, like for the demo stuff? Yeah. Probably uh, um, Not Guilty or something. One of those uh, songs that was on hardcore. Did you guys do it or did some, did you pay and have somebody, was it like, what so kind of recording record, was it? 
we used to record on a on a boom box at our practices and and, and give those yeah. tapes out to friends we actually got a fan letter somehow from one of those recordings but then we found this place in ventura that would record eight hours for 100 bucks and so we did that two times we had two different demos um and one of the demos actually <laughs> there's this dj on our local fm station called k-tide which uh -huh. is full on like classic rock station but this one guy had a, a program that he played um punk and new wave stuff his name was fear hypo and he somehow i don't know how we got this but he let us all come into the studio and we had our our tape on reel to reel we still hadn't even copied it to cassette yet. Like we had come straight from Ventura and we went straight into the studio. We played our demo over there on the FM radio, but I think we actually left the tapes there and never got them back. So that demo, there's, there's the only recordings, the only copies of that demo were from people that recorded it off the radio. That no night. <laughs> so there's some really bad copies of like two or three songs out there. Have somewhere. you ever gotten an email to you or anything? Like, I have, I have like two copies of two, I mean, two songs, maybe it maybe not complete songs. The first demo came out way better. Um, Jason's voice was so high and aggro. And um, the second <laughs> demo, Jason drank literally like 20 beers before it was <laughs> time to do vocals. And he, we had to put up a podium between him and the mic because he kept falling into the mic and it was kind of a disaster but you know good story so in those moments like as a kid are you kind of like fuck it we're just having fun or are you a little more musician oriented where you're like dude we're trying to do something rad what the fuck like what are you <laughs> thinking when you're looking over at that <laughs> we were upset i mean 100 bucks was a lot of money for us and right. um, yeah we were upset that he was flailing on the vocals but uh, <laughs> I mean, Bomber was the perfectionist in the man, and I was kind of like the quiet guy, but I would, you know, I was kind of the glue that always held things together when people got um, upset or whatever. And you were the middleman, the mediator? Kind of, yeah. Like, I, I think that there were many times the band probably would have broken up if it weren't for me. <laughs> That's a hard place to be. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. Well, um, talk about Bomber's, uh, I mean, Bomber obviously is one of the hugest influences with the drums in a lot of what's going on today and what exploded in the you know later to be whatever you want to call it but um mm. where did where where did his all his background and stuff come was his learned by himself or was he taught or his older sister she was super into like you know ted nugent and, and kiss and um hard rock stuff and, and Bomber's favorite drummer was John Bonham. So he loved Zeppelin and you'll hear sure. a lot of that influence if you really think about it. Cause uh, John Bonham would throw a lot of these double like, like super quick double kick stuff. And he wasn't using a double kick pedal. You know, like a lot of people over the years have always thought that Bomber was using a double kick pedal, but he didn't, he had that super fast right foot uh -huh. um because he did the punk beat the the socal beat whatever people call it but um <laughs> he did it more differently than just about anybody does i mean it was he, he threw in these like uh little 
like those double kick things where that most people just stick to the like constantly, but he would like like these like full on bottom like, right. like things in um you know bomber was the genius behind a lot of our stuff without him i don't think we would have lasted more than a couple of years but he's a, a good part of the reason why we stood out from a lot of the other thrash bands in santa barbara for sure yeah absolutely and jason's voice we i mean we nobody really had that growl like him except for maybe like darby crash you know <laughs> yeah and he also had the charisma where he could like i mean he was he was a funny guy that knew how to like just totally. get people involved and he was a snowboarder he, he did he have no. a ramp in his backyard yeah he had the the Cito ramp that yeah, thing so was massive. There's tons of video and um, photos of that ramp, and um, I was I was there when they built it. I don't know where the wood came from, but <laughs> um, probably same place our ramp wood came from. <laughs> that thing was huge. It was I think 20 feet wide and um, 10, I don't know, eight feet high. It was massive, huh. and they did it right. That thing was built really well. Okay. A lot of pros came by and skated that ramp. Where was that? What city was that in? It's in Montecito, it's part of Santa Montecito. Barbara. That was okay. his parents' house. They let him build it in their backyard. How long did that go for? Do you know? It was roughly? probably there two years, maybe less. I'm not sure. Okay. But it must wow. have been a pain to dis disassemble that thing. It was big. And what's the story with Josh Brolin? Was he in the band? Is that a joke? He, he was a friend. Like, how he, he was a friend of ours. He was on. I think he might have been on one of my soccer teams too. But um, him and Jason were friends before I met him. And I think Jason used to go to his house, and they would. I bet Josh had a drum kit there, and Jason probably played bass or something. Huh. Uh, in a recent interview, Josh said that they. He, we weren't actually, I wasn't actually in RKL, but I was in a band with Jason called Cito Vice Squad. So that could be the, the real story behind it. But him him mentioning mentioning RKL in interviews hasn't hurt us any. at all. <laughs> <laughs> Although I've never met anyone that said they bought a record because of Josh Brolin. But. Right. Huh. Yeah, that was interesting because... Uh my friend that's a pro skater is actually like his mom married josh Brolin, like second wife or whatever so we were i was filming his name's jimmy wilkins uh -huh. he's like one of the best vert skaters of of this generation he's amazing uh -huh. so we were filming and he mentioned that and i was like wait i kind of know those guys i never wait what like and, <laughs> and then i saw it was like on the wikipedia page or something i was like wait was he just in for one show and he gets like what was so the his story? mom married josh yeah i think so wow. like yeah so pretty crazy true. one so mystic put out keep laughing right well they put out the hardcore comp uh -huh. and so their their thing was they put as many bands as they could on a comp and then they by judging by the fan mail that came back they would do a seven inch and the seven inches were uh 33 rpm so you mm -hmm. could fit six songs on a seven inch yep. so that was the our beautiful feeling seven inch
And if that did well, then they'd do a 12 inch and we did all three. And we did a couple other comps. We did the Slimy Valley comp and a covers comp. We did the, um, uh, what song was it? Uh, anyways, we were on a, a few mystic comps and stuff. And, um, you know, at the time, nobody else would have signed our crummy band. So it was kind of a blessing. I mean, I know that over the years, we've talked a lot of shit about Mystic Records and, and no, they don't pay their bands. But I've recently um, heard some interviews with Doug Moody and he claims that um, the, the contracts that these bands all signed say that they were only to be paid in in mystic merchandise and that it said it on the, on the contract oh we were you know, underage when we signed the contract but yeah and looking back you don't know how much you were paying attention to or anything i mean a uh, lot of it's like skating where you're just like dude i'm stoked let's go let's do this mm -hmm. it's all gonna work out <laughs> right i mean yeah. i don't know Someone tells you to sign a contract and they're going to give you free, free bearings or wheels or something. Of course. Yeah. Sign Dude, it. we'll send you to Philadelphia tomorrow. I'm there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and what about the, um, the beanie, the beanie boy and it, Dan sites. Is that all yeah. around the same time? Yeah. It was all before Beanie boy was around before mystic. Um, oh. we, we met Danny, um, from our high school, I think he was from Bakersfield, but, um, me and Jason came up with the Beanie Boy idea and I'm, there's a lot of controversy about who came up with the first Beanie Boy, but I was there <laughs> and Jason drew the first one is cause me and him were discussing, oh, that, remember that, that old cartoon Beanie and Cecil and we, oh yeah, that was kind of cool. And you know, that would might be a cool if we had the beanie boy like as our mascot because he had a propeller on his head so it's kind of like lsd you know like take a trip with yeah. your head and so that was where the beanie thing was part of us it was just like take a trip inside your head because you have a propeller on your head you know uh -huh. and so um so I'm pretty sure jason drew the first one bomber probably drew a couple but when when danny drew it we're like, oh yeah, that's he had that sinister look on his face. And yeah. That like really captured perfect. our attitude, especially like Jason's attitude. Oh uh, yeah, it was I mean it was the one two and was Jason writing the lyrics or were you guys all writing lyrics? Um mostly Jason and Bomber. Bomber wrote a lot of the lyrics for for that that um rock and roll nightmare record was almost probably 95 percent all bomber bomber right. um bomber played bass on that too right he played bass and drums and he wrote like pretty much the entire record he got sick um he got hepatitis and was stuck at home for like three months and he wrote that record during that time amazing he used to call me on the phone and go listen to this and go like actually mouth the drums to me and all the guitar parts and everything and like and i just be like oh my god <laughs> but i'm sure most of it was genius you know i know jeez i remember first time hearing that record and being like 
whoa they went from this to just like i mean it's kind of punk rock rush it's just like so so instrumentally like it's really amazing and the fills of the bass i mean we'll get into it but when joe joins the band it's just perfect for him to do those you know it's like incredible i I don't know which songs are the ones but there's those breaks where it's just like there's this video of uh, joe's first show with us at the farm the the day at the farm i think it was and uh playing like blocked out and you know, he's never looking at his bass and he's playing that little red thing and, and his fingers are going like this. I'm like, what are you playing right there? And he goes, I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> he just had this like on button and it was just go. And it was crazy. Oh, wow. So that was interesting because Joe, I grew up with, well, I didn't grow up with him, but I met him like in high school and we became skater friends and worked at ghost gate in san mateo yeah i'm not exact i was talking to him recently when i was trying to get this all going and i was like i can't remember how it all came about you guys might have even put an ad on craigslist for all i know but somehow word got out rkl is looking for a bassist and joe's Mm -hmm. an amazing bass player at that time he was he's a really gifted kid like artist skateboarder whatever he did he did really well and I remember I drove him up. I don't know if it was the first or second rehearsal, but I remember like we went up and I think it was maybe on fell, like by the panhandle. Yeah. And uh, it was Barry's Barry's upstairs apartment. Yeah. And above I the mean, liquor store. I just um, want to hear your guy's reaction to like what you thought the first time you saw, like when he came in, were you like, Oh, this, this is going to work or like, was, I wasn't like, there the first two times that Joe showed up. And uh, I think this was before Craigslist was even a thing. Um, mm. There was a flyer. <laughs> Maybe I'm dating there was a flyer and one of his friends ripped it off the wall and gave it to Joe and said, you have to do this. And, okay. uh, and that's how he, yeah, he, uh, we had already kind of, we were kind of looking at um, Mikey Offender from the Offenders. He was pretty uh-huh. interested. But the offenders was a was already a band and we didn't want to steal somebody from some other band right and yeah he just immediately our songs were not super easy to play and um those rock and roll nightmare songs and uh i guess joe had was already kind of knew about our band and stuff so yeah his, for his sure. friends convinced him to come up and and bomber told me on the phone that oh we found someone this kid's awesome and yeah him and bomber clicked i think it was bomb it must have been bomber and barry then that were there mm-hmm. yeah i yeah, wasn't okay. there i don't remember what i was doing i was probably down in, in my grandmother's or something how did you guys end up linking with barry how what was the connection there uh, I can't, so that's can't remember how who met him first i think bomber must have met him first but i there's this barry's this our connection to europe kind of because uh he went to europe as a just on a whim, I guess. I'm not sure. He just went there to, to go party. <laughs> and, um, his passport, um, his passport photo has, he had a bozo haircut. So he only had hair sticking out on the sides and was totally shaved down the middle. And he still had that passport the first time RKL went to Europe. So like we used to have to go through the border every time we went to, through East Eastern Germany to get to Berlin. And sometimes they would hassle people, but they'd see that passport and just start laughing and just let us go. But, uh, I, um, 
So th- that trip, he went to Europe. This is before we met him. He met Dave Pollack from Destiny Records, and Dave had t- told him, hey, if you know any great good bands that I could bring over to Europe, any good punk, punk bands, let me know. And I don't know. Yeah, I think Bomber must It was definitely Bomber that met Barry. Oh, you know what? Actually, this is what happened. Um, <laughs> so there's this brewery, the 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 Hams Brewery in, in um, Where the, the vats Lower were? Mission. Yeah. It was the Vats. That was the Vats. And so MDC uh, practiced there, DRI practiced there. Mm. I think probably Barry's band, Morley Bankrupt, might have practiced there. And I don't know how we ended up there, but I think Jason just, we just decided, or Jason or Bomber said, hey, we got to go up to San Francisco and and play. And when I, I heard about this place, we can go stay. And we went up there and um, we went to the VATS and we met MDC and that's where we met Barry. And he set us up with a room we could stay in and we got to practice there. And the next night we played at Mabuhe Gardens on, on um, we got a show probably with DRI. I can't remember, but. Uh, yeah. Sounds about right. DRI was playing almost every yeah, week. And Barry was in DRI before he moved to San Francisco. Oh, got, really? Got kicked out, but yeah. I don't know oh, how I got kicked out. <laughs> uh, so when you did, when you guys came to SF, did were you coming up there kind of like an extended stay and it just became a, we're going to live here? No. When we first came up there, we just wanted to play out of town. And we heard that there, that there was a much better scene up there to play. Santa Barbara was getting really bad. There was like nowhere to play. I think maybe... I mean, we could only play the Red Barn so many times, and it was rude. We couldn't get any shows in LA, mm. and everyone was telling us just to go up to SF. So we just went up there. We just drove up there to this Vats place, and and someone got us on a show, and and we came back again like a month later. And Barry came down <clears throat> for some reason when we recorded the seven inch, and he's the one that had the tape with Spock on it, you know, with a. Uh, yeah, seem to be in a state identical um, to that curious 20th century earth disease called hard drug abuse. He had that tape and we put that on the on the record. And he also there's a a, a crank call that was Barry's voice saying, can I describe my penis to you? And she <laughs> give it to you. Goddamn mommy, little damn punk. <laughs> yeah. So that was Barry, Barry's contribution to that record. And he didn't actually join the band till after keep laughing came out okay so he didn't he wasn't on that recording no but just his tapes were on there and his voice was on there on that that crank call but he played all over i mean he played the entire rock and roll nightmare record Uh uh-huh he was in the band for a while by that time what like is special to you about the city what did you love about it well at the time I mean, it's so different from Santa Barbara. I, I didn't, I wasn't into how cold it was there. <laughs> yeah, Coming I from Santa it. Barbara, I, yeah. I was bummed about that. And I, was, I wasn't I was super stoked about moving up there, but I didn't really have a choice because my mom had moved up there oh. and Bomber moved up there. And the only person that didn't move up there was Jason and he never lived there. He, he hated it up there kind of. I mean, right. He liked playing up there, but he had his group of friends. His really his clique in in Montecito. He was like a Cito rat, and he was the king of his little clan of 
party people down there. So he didn't, okay. he had a name down there and he still had his, his parents down there and stuff. So he, he just, it just never appealed to him. And so, you know, the band was in San Francisco and Jason was in Santa Barbara and we would practice three times a week or more. And we were just trying to get tighter and tighter. And we just wanted to be a, a monster band, you know, we wanted to be like the bad brains or something, you know, something right. that would leave people with the draw, you know, jaws drop kind of band. And, and, you know, Jason's just charisma and the way he just kind of Darby crashed all over the whole thing was, was kind of the magic of it all. Mm. Were you play, like you, Mabu, Hey, uh, the farm was brought on Broadway there. Welcome on Broadway. The yeah. stone stone, the I beam, the, the viz. Um, we played, I mean, over the years, there's tons of clubs. We, Played Club Foot and uh, CW. Were you playing Gilman, uh, like East Bay too? Played Gilman maybe three times, I think. Uh huh. They weren't huge fans of us, but no. San Jose. <laughs> but they, in San Jose, we played. The venues seem to change down there quite a bit. We uh -huh. weren't regulars down there. Okay. But uh, we played there. There's there's a pretty good video of RKL in the later years playing there like 95 probably we were playing the riches to rags stuff and there's a actually a pretty good sounding video on youtube of, of us playing that place Rad. but i can't remember what it was called i mean the day on the farm is pretty like that was kind of an iconic they i think they had two or three or four of those you guys probably played the second or the third one i think I'm not sure which one it was. They had more than one camera going, and yeah, the farm was so sick for us because, like I said, we live in the peninsula, and the seven F would get onto the freeway and drop you off right at the farm. It was the <laughs> first. It was the first exit when they got off the freeway into the yeah. city. So it was like boom, and we used to come up every. Like I said, every Friday was DRI verbal abuse, and then like four other bands. Like yeah. it was just like felt that way anyway. Do you remember before the Embarcadero Freeway collapsed and used to be able to get off at Broadway Street? Yeah, no, for sure. We would go to shows over there too, um, Broadway and Mabuhe. And yeah, before the freeway, no one yeah. to this you just day. just stay in the right lane and you end up right there. It was, yeah. It was yeah. That's my zone now. I walk over there in the mornings with my coffee and stuff and cruise <laughs> by there. And it's a trip. It's a yeah. ghost town after COVID. But yeah, for sure. Um, so when was the first time you guys went to Europe as a band? Was that the Keep Laughing tour? Um, 88. So um, Rock and Roll Nightmare was already out. Oh. Yeah. It was, um, so 88. Um, and we already had fans there. Um, Alchemy Records was in based out of England. So the people knew about us more there than they did in the States. Right. Our, our last tour that we had done in the States was with... Um, uh, beyond possession and it was kind of a horrible tour just like a disastrous mm. um and uh so you know we got offered this europe tour and like we were playing these pretty decent you know 300 capacity packed places playing big old squats and and you know all traveling different city every night it was all like 
like if we got fed and we always had at least somewhere to stay it might not have been nice but <laughs> right um it was incredible we went back there in 89 and did it again and we didn't do i don't think we did anything in the states in between or maybe just a couple shows but um we didn't try to tour the states again until after that but uh that was when after 89 bomber was starting to feel like jason's vocals were slowing us down because he wanted us to be more like i don't know living color or something like more bluesy hard rock kind of funk stuff and that's when the whole um uh reactivate era of the band came about and you know jason was kind of busy in his montecito world doing partying basically and and um that was a weird era where it was like and then the other and then you didn't know who's in what band it was almost (laughs) like just it was very weird yeah that that reactivate record was a mistake for sure i mean we weren't we weren't even really a band we we had just got dave on drums and he hadn't really played our style of punk before and he was in the band like one month and here we are recording an album and it wasn't even really punk it was more funk funk metal and i don't know and 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 so we were the band was called slang at the time and that's right yeah and then brett brett and bombers said you're, you're, you know, Brett was telling Bomber, you know, you're RKL. You can, you could just call this RKL. You know, you're, you're the band. And so Bomber, of course, ate up, ate that up. And, and I, you know, I just kind of went with whatever. I didn't realize what a mistake that was, but it was a pretty big mistake. And people would constantly, like, when we went back to Europe, is, is that version of RKL? It was like, oh, I like very much your first records, but this record I think is shit. You know, as the, oh. <laughs> the Germans don't hold back when they give you those backhanded compliments, and that was common. Oh my god! But that that was the tour that our, our roadie and our good friend Will didn't show up in the morning when we were supposed to leave, and it turned out that he had died in the park that night. And, it was really horrible and emotional and, and bomber said that's it i'm going home and so um so we we thought well fuck that we you know we're already here and we're you know we have all these shows set up and let's just call jason and see if he wants to come out and we called him and he said hell yeah and he came out and he was totally strung out on dope but um we played one show in barcelona and then we went out to Majorca Island to for him to detox because we were pretty sure he couldn't score out there. And we ended up playing a show in Majorca. We were the only American punk band besides the Ramones to ever play Majorca at that time. Wow. And then we came back and did a tour and then we came home and we wrote Riches to Rags. And and then um, you know, we were we were started. We had a big kind of fire under us. We were doing really well and then we took some time off and Jason got back into drugs and everything fell apart. We did one more Euro tour, but that by the end of that tour, we were like done pretty much. Um, and then, so then we got home and we we're still writing music, but we were thinking maybe we needed to find a new singer. And I kept sending demos down to Jason and hopefully, hoping he would be motivated to, 
to come back and do stuff. And eventually he did sing on those demos, but it was much later, um, like a couple of years after we recorded them. And those are the demos that people that you might have heard, like the, that Made in Galita song is on there. And there's like four or five songs that, that he actually sang on and they came out really cool. and fat records going and all that stuff had started happening. Lagwagon was the first band on fat and that was 1989, I believe, or maybe 90. Oh, wow. So we had already gone to Europe twice by then and we were on about to break up essentially. I think Reactivate came out in 92 on Epitaph and then um, Bomber somehow organized epitaph to license rock and roll nightmare because that record was not no longer available to anyone Uh uh-huh alchemy records dissolved i believe after you know bomber left the reactivate version of rkl he went on to to form the other and um, they were actually signed to epitaph and they recorded a record it's the musicianship and the songs are awesome but it was never released the sound quality was kind of crummy it could have been remixed probably but uh and then we at the same time recorded the riches to rags album and then we did some touring yeah that was you know that was 95 something like that 95 who wrote most of riches to rags did you write most of that me and joe most wrote a lot of it and and barry wrote some of it too and jason did all almost all the lyrics okay man so looking back like is it hard to even figure out between like when you think of the band without bomber and the band without jason Mm. is it kind of like you just needed them both and you needed them both to get along and like i think we were doing pretty well without bomber during the riches to rags era i mean because huh. i mean I, a lot of people like that record and uh, I, it was hard and we knew we had to live up to we had to have something comparable to rock and roll nightmare so we tried to make that record really gnarly and um you know i'm, I'm pretty proud of that record but yeah bomber and jason and Bomber just had a different vision than than sure. we did. And he thought we could, you know, in his mind, these songs were probably way gnarlier than the way we played them. You know, he was like a musical genius, you know. <laughs> yeah, I could have. 
Imagine. What was the, do you remember the first Europe trip that Joe went with you guys? Like, was, was he pretty green? Like, did you have to help him through some of like the different things of being a band on the road and stuff out there? Yeah. I mean, he, he wasn't in the band very long before we went, went that, it to was Europe. Pretty, yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah. He basically, his parent was, I just saw a photo of, of us at the airport. His parents were like, sending him off and i think they're like almost crying <laughs> and uh hope we see you they again. had to sign a document that said barry was joe's legal guardian because wow. he was a minor <clears throat> he was 17. he yeah i mean he he pretty much embraced it he was he was on fire on that both of those tours oh he must have been i mean that's a <laughs> dream come true for him he's just yeah. like plug me yeah, in. he skated everywhere too and we got to skate um there was this empty pond at the at the um eiffel tower yeah they had these cool banks everywhere and i i went back there several times and tried to figure out where it was because i've never seen it since then but there's just some cop chasing him around on foot and he was just like ah, like doing little ollies and stuff and it was pretty funny but yeah that there's a picture of um, Joe ollieing over the band and stuff. And right. Yeah, I've uh, I've always said one of the highlights for me was I got to go down to that Santa Barbara show that you were talking about where you played with the Ramones. Yeah. And uh, tell a little bit about that, because I remember I think uh, your drum pedal or maybe it was yeah, the hi-hat, hat. something broke. And the Ramones wouldn't let you borrow it. So you yeah. ended up headlining, I think. Yeah. Oh, maybe that's right. That's probably because what you had to actually. go, you had to go to like somebody's yeah. house and get some equipment. And yeah. Whatever. And, and that there was actually a fight between Will, that friend of mine that I mentioned that died on tour with us. Um, oh. He got in a fight with the roadies from the Ramones because they wouldn't lend us a hi hat. The yeah. bomber, like, so the, we had played the Reseda Country Club. Like, that was the, show we played before that Ramones show and it had been weeks since that show. I don't think we rehearsed or anything. And uh bomber drums are like scattered all over the place. I somehow he was missing a bunch of stuff. He never bought sticks and he hated buying cymbals. He was always like he he hated playing drums essentially because such a pain to set him up and carry him around and everything. And yeah. He, he was starting to to realize that he was he was a good guitar player and a good bass player and singer too. So he was like, fuck all this shit. I, I want to play guitar. I want to be in front. You know? Yeah. So looking back, were you originally in Lagwagon? Were you one of the original? No, no you no, came no. in. No, I didn't really? join until 97. They, they had already been together, you know, eight years or six years. I don't know how many, but a while. Okay. Well, this, from my perspective, RKL is a huge influence to probably every band on Fat Records, and I think they would admit that. I and, wouldn't say every band, but, but a, a lot, lot of the California. A lot of the main ones, maybe like no effect, <clears throat> you know, some of these bands that did a lot bigger than RKL did, and I don't know what the animosity level is or what the, like, fuck, they stole our scent, like all that stuff. But what I do know is when I look at the current lag wagon, uh, 
Yeah, the, the crew, they were all in our gale. I know. And even Joey Cape was at it, one that, of our that, first rehearsals. As a, yeah. So, I mean, it's it's pretty interesting to me. I just I, I wonder what kind of pride you take into that or, and what kind of like, do you just look at it as like that was then this is now? Or, I mean, how much of it do you hold on? You guys still play our kale songs live occasionally with Lagwagon, right? Well, at least at, at soundcheck and at practice. Yeah. Uh huh. We actually played an RKL song in Ventura when we just recently played there at, at the uh, Punk and Drublick show. And uh, Joey didn't sing it. Uh, we had a friend of ours come sing it, our friend Damien, and he sang for the RK Aliens when we went <clears throat> and played a, a show in Spain a few years back. Huh. I mean, what would your fans tell you? What are some of the songs that are like, the ones like that if you're going to play a song for an arcade audience what are they wanting to hear i probably scab on my brain probably and Um, some of, a lot of the keep laughing stuff actually you know people always want to hear i don't know maybe even dead ted's like some of the sim more simple stuff actually uh, but you know with the, the people that are musicians probably are tend to want to hear more of the rock and roll nightmare stuff you know blocked out it's like the epic yeah song and um you know break the camel's back that song is insane Fuck, I know uh, the one rumors too. I think kind yeah. of that one's technically difficult to play. Yeah, it's it? pretty nuts. I recently <laughs> went back and relearned it. It, it. It's there's so many. There's only one part that repeats in the whole song. I think. I mean, you guys tour a lot, by the way, right? Like when I was trying to interview you earlier, you're like, oh, we're going on tour. Okay, we'll do it when you get back. And you get back and be like, oh, we're going on another one. I was like, last year yeah. was nuts. Uh, was uh, that just because was... it was post COVID and you were trying yeah. to catch up? Yeah. And we had a couple of tours that we had to make up, and we're still doing that this year. We got to go to Canada and make up a bunch of shows that we canceled because uh -huh. of COVID. The crew got sick, band got sick. Oh. two different times we canceled it must be gnarly when we saw um who was that we saw pearl jam at uh locally and mm -hmm. their drummer got covid the night before and they got the a drummer a local drummer from like marin to come in and play the set the next night 
Wow. Was I can say? <laughs> yeah. So I can't even imagine trying to tour during like these crazy times have been really nuts. Yeah, it's been a bummer. <laughs> How, how's uh, the the lessons? You're doing lessons over like FaceTime or something? Yeah, I, I use um, Skype and um, Zoom. Uh huh. And I, you know, when I started doing that when Lagwagon had to cancel a bunch of shows because of COVID, and I was I was actually uh, I couldn't even go to work when I got home because I had to to um, isolate for 10 days. And so I made a video and say, you know, I'm starting to give lessons online. At one point I had 35 students and I, was, my, I look back at my schedule and I was working a day job and it was, my calendar was just like, in, just full. But I still have like um, a lot of students and a lot of loyal students. It's been really great. Yeah. But it's, uh, Chris Rest, I'm at, at Chris Rest Guitar on Facebook and, and Instagram. And um, you have a website? ChrisRest.com has my links, but yeah, on, um, you could DM me on Instagram or Facebook at Chris Rest Guitar. So, what was it that brought 2000, what was it last year, right? That the, the live album came out. What? What's is that a anniversary thing or is that some track? It was, it was like a year off from being an anniversary thing, but uh, Barry discovered that we had the original t um, tapes with the tracks separated. We had already used that recording on the uh, DVD, the Still Flailing After All These Beers DVD. That recording is, is used a lot on that DVD, but we got to remix it because we had the we found the actual tapes where the drums were separated from the vocals and the guitars. And um, so we got to kind of remix it. And that was the reason that we decided to put it out. And so we got our friend Justin um, remix it and master it. And I asked Mike if he was interested in putting it out alive, live in a dive. And it was like pretty low overhead for him to, to do it. And so he was like, hell yeah. And, so I was stoked that that came together. Rad, yeah. It's uh, I was listening to a couple of songs today, and it sound man, it's pretty. It's like you can tell it's a modern archaeology. It's like really tight though. It feels like since we were in Holland, we might as well do Podhead, huh? Totally lost Gotta squish the blood, man, whatever the cost 
What's your guys' favorite place to go when you're out, like overseas? Are you like, do you have one country that you love to keep going back to, or anything? Kind of, I don't know. Like for a while, it was Spain was was awesome, and um, it kind of the scene kind of changes sometimes. It, when RKL first started going there, Germany was like we played Germany all the time, um, mm. but Spain had always backed us really well. England's fun because, you know, you kind of get, it's just different because, you know, you get, I mean, you're in Europe for three, you know, two months and you start to get sick of Europeans and, and <laughs> being in England is kind of like, almost like being home a little bit. And, right. But Italy was always cool to go to. And I love going up to like Norway and stuff. And during the, the old RKL tours going up there, it was beautiful cool i mean it's just trippy you're playing like these log cabins and weird little you're just way up there <laughs> yeah it's just different you know or it's dark all day or it's light all day yeah that's so crazy i know yeah. i get i get tripped out on it um what are the do you have some like top influential stuff like right now in this era is there anything that's stoking you out is there new bands that i should know about or just oh, stuff that you're getting fired up maybe somebody that opened for you guys that you're pretty hyped on or anything i'm probably the wrong person to ask but i mean um wilhelm scream rips i mean they're they're a band that plays with lagwag a lot and they're just insane like so technical uh -huh. and they just shred and um belvedere's great great band from canada um what else uh there's, there's some other ones that lagwag has played with recently that were tough bands to follow that's for sure well what's your go-to guitar like if you're if you can only take one guitar with you which one are you taking uh my my 74 custom les paul is the my main guitar and that's the i bring it on every tour um, I bought it in Berkeley. I bought it used. It had already had the headstock broken off and it, they repaired it really well, but it, it needed frets. It had these 70s frets that were super flat, like jazz frets. I don't know what the purpose was, but they were horrible. And so I put, you know, nice big frets on it. And that thing's been my main guitar ever since. And the reason I 
bought it was because I have this 76 Les Paul standard that I got as a kid and it was getting thrashed and you know I didn't it was one of my first real guitars and so I didn't I didn't want it to get thrashed anymore so I kind of retired that one and, and bought this guitar well the headstock's already been broken off I'll, I won't care if it gets thrashed but now I you know now I care about that guitar huh. and it was a $900 Les Paul and you know could be worth quite a bit more these days but I'm not sure right I mean, it's thrash but it still plays really well okay sick dude well you, you guys got anything coming up or are you chilling for a minute flywagon has um canada japan and australia this year nice and then a pumpkin pumpkin drublick show san francisco i think oh are you or coming daily to city yeah i think daily city okay. i'm not sure when that is nice well if you guys are cruising up maybe i can come out and see y'all yeah hit me up. Cool. i feel like it's been such a time warp of just craziness i was talking to joe the other day and it was so cool because like you know you have certain friends that it doesn't matter how long you haven't talked to them but you could just pick up right where you left off and, yeah. stuff. and i feel like joe's one of those guys we spent a lot of time together early on bad and see him a long time and it was just instantly like jabbing and yeah. joking around he's in portugal right now Oh, he, is went he? There, he went to the Azores because that's where his family's from. He went there with yeah. his family to go visit oh. where his family came from. He seems like wow. he's really enjoying it. I bet. It's beautiful. That's where my uh, my mom's dad is from, the really? Azores. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, oh, okay. When does he get back? Do you know? I don't know. I didn't even know he was going. He just started sending photos. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Well, shit. Um, thanks for giving me so much of your time, man. I really yeah. appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we always end with a song. Um, you can play any song you'd like. Would what would you like throw on for like any song in the universe? Or yeah, any song in the universe. <laughs> any song you've done. A song, whatever. Oh my god, I'm on the spot. Yeah. Let's see. Wow, that's that's tough. I'll, let's play some some germs in, in memory of jason sears we'll play some germs like uh, richie dagger or something like that okay fuck yeah thanks dude i appreciate it and uh be safe out there it's crazy times thanks man take care well thanks me okay later talk to you soon bye
The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Schmidt. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. When you subscribe, you'll get notifications every Tuesday of new episodes the minute they become available. Also, please leave reviews and a five-star rating. It's the best way to help the show grow. All of the episodes will always remain free, but if you would like to help support the show, you can do so at TalkingSchmidt.com, where you can pick up some merchandise like t-shirts, beanies, hats, and stickers. The website has an entire archive of all of the episodes with extra photos and videos. Email us with any suggestions, comments, or ways that the show may have improved your life at TalkingSchmidt at gmail.com. All interviews are conducted, edited, and produced by Schmitty. The intro music is Mary's Cross by the band Nature. A very special shout-out goes to the executive director, Cheryl Camisa. Shout-out. Love it! This is Talking Schmidt, where the Rolodex is deep, but the conversation is deeper. Keep the wheels greased.